Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to go back to the book of Esther. We're going to be in the book, or the chapter of Esther, Esther chapter 3. Since it's been a moment or two since we visited our friends Esther and Mordecai in the far-off land of Persia, we need to do a previously in Esther to find out what was going on. Never has ancient history been more applicable to this moment in history. Like Esther and Mordecai, we Christians live as exiles in a foreign land. Like Esther and Mordecai, we are confronted and sometimes confounded by the world that we live in. Like Esther and Mordecai, we are hated for those, hated for, hated, and we struggle to know how to respond. It used to be in the United States that we were regarded, Christians were regarded as a little bit strange. Now, we are thought of as dangerous. It seems that things are going to get harder and not easier. How do we remain in the world and yet not of the world? And maybe you're here and you feel powerless to change anything and you feel like a pawn that's being pushed all over the board. Well, Esther 3 is a story all about power. We're going to see who has the power and what they do with it. We're also going to see who doesn't have the power and what happens to them. But first, where are we? What happened in Esther chapter 2 or 1 and 2? You'll recall Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God's name. He seems completely absent from the book. Not only is that, that's perplexing, but not only does he seem absent, the two heroes, Mordecai and Esther, act as if there is no God to follow. They are, not, they are not people that we want to emulate. Remember Esther 2? After hundreds of contestants, Esther won the contest to be queen by means of a body one-night stand with the king. That's how she won. You see, Esther, at the beginning of chapter 3, is in the world, of the world, and on top of the world, beating in the world at its own game. Esther 3, the gap between Esther 2 and 3 is about five years. So far, so good. Everything's going swimmingly. But any story worth telling has problems. And the problems begin in earnest in Esther chapter 3. Now, if Esther was set to music, chapter 3 would be the ominous, threatening melody. First, we see Mordecai defying power. Verse 1. Follow along in your Bible if you have one on your phone. That's fine, too. After these things, King Ahasuerus, which we've learned is King Xerxes, he's the same, promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So Esther's continuing to be queen. We have no story of her repenting. No story of her asking for help. No story of her praying. No story or account of her worshiping. No, no account of her saying, what did I do? Nope. She's continuing to go on as the queen of a godless nation. Now, nothing in verse 1 might seem particularly 
ominous, but we need to look a little bit closer. Remember, we've said that narratives in the Bible communicate truth subtly, and rarely do they say, and that was bad, or and that was dangerous. But a dangerous figure emerges, and his name is Haman. He's promoted to what amounts as to prime minister. And the reason that we know he's dangerous is because he's an Agagite. It's kind of a mouthful, a little bit of alliteration there. But that connection, we might, it might not be obvious to us, but that connection was not lost on the Jewish audience. It would be as if we read, and after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Nazi. We go, whoa, that's a turn. That's how they regarded the Agagites. It's at this point they would say, maybe echo what Ted said to Bill or Bill said to Ted in their excellent adventure, when they said, strange things are afoot at the Circle K, or Persia, or wherever. That's how they knew something was about to go down. To be an Agagite was to be related to one of the Jewish arch enemies, or maybe the greatest enemy they had. The trouble between the Agagites or the Amalekites dated back all the way to Jacob and Esau. The Jews came from Jacob and Esau was the father of the Amalekites. Further, the Amalekites attacked the Jews when they were just weary, weary, they were just rescued out of Egypt and they ambushed the weary stragglers. And the Lord himself said, I will make war on the Amalekites. So, when we read in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, that Haman the Agagite is promoted, we should go, whoa, something bad is about to happen. And sure enough, here comes trouble. Verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. The king's servants who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So what happens here? Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. Now some people want to say, Hey, this is, this is, he wouldn't bow down because he worships the only true God, and he, doesn't, he only bows to God. That's hogwash and ridiculous. In chapter 8, he's going to bow down to the king. Bowing down in this culture communicated respect, much like a soldier would, would salute his superior. What Mordecai is doing is not noble, but it's proud. In that day, you showed, a, you showed your respect for the authorities by bowing down. But, Haman, but Mordecai refused to bow before Haman. Mordecai did this in open, and Haman, Haman's people, Haman, the king's servants, saw this. And day after day, they would go to him and say, Dude, why are you not bowing down to the king, or to Haman? The king said you need to. Because when you don't honor Haman, you're not honoring the king. And day after day, they would go to him, and he didn't answer. He didn't answer. The narrator doesn't tell us explicitly why Mordecai refuses to show honor, by, honor to Haman, but we can see from the text that there are at least two reasons. First, Haman's an Agagite. Now, Mordecai might have forgotten who God was, because we don't see him even caring about who God is, but he remembers who's, who his enemies are, and he hates the Agagites. 
He hates the Amalekites. So he is not going to bow to them. That's one reason. But there's another reason as well. And it happened at the end of chapter 2. It's been a while, so let's rekindle our collective memories. We have to turn the Wayback Machine five years in Esther chapter 2, verse 22, 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And Mordecai was promoted to be the... No. What happened? What did the king do to Mordecai? Nothing. Mordecai saves the king's life? And how does the king reward him? By forgetting him. Now, surely, Mordecai, this is a problem for Mr. Mordecai. He's got a huge problem with being overlooked. Not only that, Haman comes out of nowhere to be promoted over his head, and Mordecai becomes the forgotten man. And the king's servants, they know that Mordecai is snubbing Haman and the king. They press Mordecai, dude, why are you transgressing the king's command? And he didn't answer them day after day after day after day. It wasn't like one time. He go, they go in, man, you should really bow. Why aren't you doing this? And Mordecai refused to answer. He refused to listen. And so when they went to report to Haman why Mordecai was not bowing, they don't really know why. The only thing they mention is that he said he was a Jew which really has nothing to do with anything. They surmise that Jews could not bow. We know that that's patently false because Mordecai bows to the king later, chapter 8. It's like this. When I was a kid, if I didn't want to do something with my friends who didn't go to church, I would just say, it's against my religion. You eat vegetables? Ah, kind of against my religion. And they wouldn't touch it. You want to go to ice capades? That's definitely against my religion. You want to play board games? Against my religion, sorry. Of course, none of it was against my religion, but that's essentially what Mordecai did. He basically said, I'm Jew, it's against my religion, and it wasn't. Now, do you see the problem? Do you recall the counsel that Mordecai shared with Esther when she was entering the one-night-stand sex contest with the king. What did he say? Esther chapter 2, verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Why? Because it would be dangerous to her and her people. And what does Mordecai do? He says, well, it's against my religion to bow. What a moron! Right? This guy is a dunderhead with a capital D, right? Here, he's so chapped at being overlooked by the king that he lets it know that he let, lets them know he's a Jew and thereby puts all Jews in the in the empire at, at risk. Why is why is Esther supposed to keep her identity as her race quiet and not him? Because he's proud. Pride 
is always more deadly than we think. Always. And so, if you're king of the world, and there were a people who thought didn't obey you as a matter of their religion, what do you do? Well, we've seen Mordecai defy power. Now we see Haman abusing power. Look at, at, at verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, all 127 different provinces. That escalated quickly. See the progression? Mordecai refused to show Haman respect. So Haman says, I'm going to kill them all. Whoa. Whoa. Now we can't excuse Haman here, but Mordecai's pig-headed pride caused more trouble than he ever thought it would. This goes from a personal matter to now a matter of, 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 of worldwide proportion. Because Haman is publicly humiliated, he's not going to just go let bygones be bygones. He's going to exact revenge, and not just on Mordecai. He's going to exact re- revenge on the whole people of Israel. In other words, the prime minister of Persia regarded the Jewish residents as the declared enemies of the state. Now, he's too smart to just enact this on his own. He knows he needs royal authority. And so he he makes his plans. And first, he consults his God, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So Haman, in, in his belief system, which we won't, I won't bore you with the belief system of the ancient Near East, but what they believed was that the gods, the, the gods decided what was going to happen in a given year at the beginning of the year. So Haman's like, okay, I want to kill the Jews this year. What day should I do it? And so they cast lots, cast lots, and they come up with the 13th day of the 12th month. He's patient, he's cunning. That's about a year away when he makes the plan. Now, he needs approval from the king, so he needs to go to the king. Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people, notice he doesn't name them, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's (coughs) excuse me, not to the king's benefit to tolerate them. All right, so Haman has his speech ready when he goes into Xerxes. He paints the Jews as troublemakers who are embedded in his land. He doesn't even name them. He says there are a certain people different from every people. Now, he's not wrong, but he makes them sound subversive. And he ups the ante, essentially saying, They don't obey you, they don't respect you, they don't listen to you. Haman paints the people of God as embedded sleeper cells ready to rise up and destroy the the empire from within. 
man, when you don't preach, you forget how much breath it takes. So, and he's going to try to, he's going to try to get the king to do what he wants, and he saves his best for last. Verse 9, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So what does he do? He bribes the king. He says, hey, listen, if you do this, I will pay you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, for those scoring at home, 10,000 talents of, of silver is 330 tons of silver. 330 tons of silver. Haman says, if it please the king, you do this, I'll give you 330 tons of silver. Do you think that pleases the king? Oh, uh, yeah. Mordecai defied power. Haman abused power. What's Xerxes going to do? Well, he's going to advocate power. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamathera, and the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the money is given to you, and the people also do with them what, as it seems good to you. The king, the king does not ask who these certain people are. He doesn't ask where are you going to get the money. What he does is he goes, sure, here's the ring, which means Haman is now free to be able to speak and act in the name of the king with the authority of the king. And so, Haman has authority now as he walks out of that room to inflict full-scale genocide on the people of God. Mordecai snubbed him, yes, but Haman wants to grind the Jewish people into dust. He abused his power. There's one more character in the story. It's the people of God who had no power. The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written in to the king's satraps and the governors of over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with, destruction, with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. And the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Did you notice who is supposed to carry out this liquidation, this annihilation of the Jews? 
It's the peoples of the land. So he's not speaking to the military. What he's doing is he's saying, listen, there's a people amongst us called the Jews. And all of you who know them and are neighbors with them, coming up at the end of the year, you need to be ready to rise up and kill them and plunder all their stuff. So he is deputizing the entire empire with this heinous charge to turn on their friends and neighbors to kill them all. And it's 12 months away. Notice how strong these verbs are in verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. They were given state sanction to steal, kill, and destroy their Jewish neighbors in all 127 provinces throughout the land of Persia. The people of God had no power and they were treated like pawns to be moved about. No one cared for them. No one watched over them. No one advocated for them. And they are only marked for death. Lost in this barbarity was something that would have jumped out to the Jewish audience. The date of this genocidal edict becoming law of the land was the 13th day of the first month or the day before Passover. How's that for irony? The day before the Jewish people gathered to celebrate their rescue from Egypt, Haman signed their collective death warrant. And they needed another rescue. Will they cry out? No, they won't. Will Mordecai tear his robe and say, what have I done? Nope. Will Esther say, I did it all wrong? Nope. What a story. What are we to make of this? We see Mordecai defying power, Haman abusing power, Xerxes advocating power, and the people of God have no power. This is not very uplifting. If you and I were living this out, we would wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? Do you see this evil that's being perpetrated with a high hand? Do you see that the law of the land is now to kill the people of God? Of God? Do you care that we are marked out as those who are led to the slaughter? I could see myself saying these things. And what are the people to make of this? They need to remember, as do we who live as exiles, far from home. We need to remember that there are always going to be people who defy power. There are going to be people who abuse power. There are going to be people who advocate power. And it will always seem that the people of God have no power. But we need to remember that God has all the power. He seems absent from this story, but we must understand that God is the one who has all the power He may seem absent from this story. He may seem absent from your life story. But take one thing. If you were to take one thing away from Esther 3 today, it's this. God the All-Powerful uses His power to rescue His people. 
God the All-Powerful uses His power to rescue His people even when we cannot see evidence of that power. He is God the Almighty. Or El Shaddai. Alec Matir says this, El Shaddai is the God who is at His most powerful when human strength and resources are at their lowest ebb. That's it. There, there, there's nobody rising up and advocating for the Jew, the people of God in chapter 3 here. There's nobody saying, hey, listen, let's take this to court. Nobody's doing any of that. But God is in control. And sometimes it seems like we as Christians are a minority that will never get a fair hearing. But God is in control. He has all the power. He is the God who said to Moses, I am. He said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That doesn't just mean that God is there. Rather, it means that God is actively present with his people and he is with his people from every age to rescue them and protect them from their foes. And as we keep reading Esther, we're going to see that God miraculously will reverse Haman's decree and rescue his people through compromised heroes. But what about us? When you look at your life, does it seem like Esther 3? That God seems absent and there are all a bunch of evil actors in your life who have all the power. You find all sorts of things happening and you feel like you are a pawn being pushed around and you're trapped, powerless, and unable to do anything. Are you trapped in fear? Are you captive to anxiety? Are you chained to angst? Are you subject to distress? Friends, whether we can sense Him or not, God the Almighty is upholding His people at this very moment. Sometimes, not every time, but some, not every time, but sometimes, the reason we're captive to fear and face trials is to remind us that we are not as strong as we think we are. We are all weaker than we like to admit, and we control less than we know. But recognizing our weakness is often the key to escape the jail cell of fear and anxiety. Recognizing our weakness is often the key to escape the jail cell of fear and anxiety. See, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to be fearful and anxious when I think there's nothing I can do. Here's the reality, friends. Generally, there is nothing we can do. We're not that strong. We're not that smart. We're not that capable. Some days we go to sleep and wake up and we can't move the right side of our face. Why? Because I was in a fight with an intergalactic alien? Nope. Because I had a debate with the smartest atheist in the world and I talked too much? Nope. Because I speak nine languages and I was using, I got them confused. Nope. Because a little teeny virus got in my nose 
and messed up my face. I'm not strong. Friends, none of us are as strong as we think. And that's the key to recognizing that while we may not have power, I know one who does. And we don't need to look to the Mordecai's or the Haman's or the Xerxes of the world. We can look somewhere else, somewhere better. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 when Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh and hears these words from Jesus. He says, My grace, it's Jesus speaking, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Listen to that again. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I wish his power was made perfect in not weakness in good times and happy, and happy friends, in getting plenty of sleep and feeling totally healthy, in having plenty of money and not knowing where to spend it all. That's not how it works. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, when we recognize and embrace our weakness that is there, we have access to power that we can't always discern. The key, the key for us today is to recognize not only that God has all power, but that we don't. He's the one who has the power. We are the ones who are weak. For the sake of Christ, then, he says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not just when I am weak, because we all are weak all the time. It's when I realize I am weak and lean on Him for strength. It's then I'm strong. It's not that sometimes we're strong and sometimes we're weak. No, we're always weak. The question is, will we realize that and embrace that and recognize that we must look away from ourselves, away from the resources we think we have inside, away from those things that we think we know, and look instead to Jesus who says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, take heart. You are far weaker than you think, but he is far stronger than you know. And he uses this power to protect his people. We're going to read of a rescue in Esther. It's coming. It's going to be great. And it's super ironic. And we're going to laugh. But that rescue is a foreshadowing of a different rescue. A rescue from Jesus Christ. Unlike Mordecai, who defied power because he did not get the respect he wanted... Jesus, who should have been recorded not just respect, but worship, humbly laid down his life. Unlike Haman, who abused power to attempt to kill the people of God, 
Jesus gave up his power and was mounted on a Roman cross to be killed for the people of God. Unlike Xerxes, who advocated his power because of a bribe, Jesus leveraged his power for his people when he rose from the dead. Like the people of God, Jesus seemed to have no power. But Jesus is high and lifted up. He's not just alive, friends. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Take heart. You may not be strong. None of us are strong. But he is. He is. Now you might be here and you think, man, I haven't turned to God in so long. Well, you can turn to him today. Ask for forgiveness. Trust in him. Talk to somebody who's a believer. And they can tell you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Maybe you're a Christian and you recognize, (laughs) I need help. Take heart. He looks to you more often than you look to him. He's aware of your weakness and he's ready and eager to help right where you need it. God has all power. Lastly, we need to remember that we as Christians are at war. You read Esther 3 and you think, man, Haman, this, the way that Haman responds seems so crazy. It's the epitome of overkill. And you think, Mordecai, dude, what did you start? Haman, calm down. See, the reason he responded this way is not because, not only because Mordecai refused to show him respect. This is a part of an older story. The opposition to the people of God in the Old Testament, the Jews, in the New Testament, the Christians, is never really political. It's always spiritual. And this long before, long before to this, long before these, these events, the sides of the, of the combatants were settled. Haman and Mordecai were born with the sides already drawn up. Because Satan, our great adversary, opposes the people of God in every age. Genesis 3 says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's speaking of Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a lot in that verse, but one thing to understand is this. The enmity between Satan and humanity is real and it's constant. Enmity means hatred beyond anything we can understand. Satan hated the Jews of the Old Testament because he knew that Jesus would rise from their number. He tried to kill and steal and destroy from them without success. His hatred for the people of God today still stands. And his hatred for Christians has only intensified. If you don't believe me, when you get home, read Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of Satan trying to kill Jesus. And then notice his, his, his attitude toward those who follow Jesus. Revelation 12, 17 says this, Then the dragon, that's Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, that's us, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Satan was furious, and he's still furious. He wants each and every one of us dead. 
And sometimes what he does is he uses state-sponsored persecution to come at Christians. This has happened in Persia here, Greece, Rome, the Holy Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Prussian Empire, communist and non-communist Russia, Nazi Germany, and the United States. Have you wondered why all of a sudden our culture and our world has turned against Christians? It's not just that it's popular, it's unpopular. It's not just that, that we have this, this pendulum going back and forth. There are many reasons, but this is the key reason. Satan is stoking the fires of hatred against us. Just as Haman's reaction to Mordecai seemed way over the line, our world more and more will do the same thing to Christians. Why? Because there is an evil force behind their actions. I'm not saying that the adversaries of Christians and Christianity are possessed by the devil, but there is a power behind this kind of state-sponsored persecution. He, he is able to manipulate them. That's the truth, and that will always be the truth in this world. Until Jesus returns. So, if you're frustrated, part of the reason, I mean, be frustrated, but turn that frustration into prayer. Ask the Lord for help. But also recognize this is the way it's been. This is the way it will be. We're exiles. We're foreigners. We're a people scattered throughout the world who don't obey, who have different kinds of laws, just like Haman said of the Jews. It's true. We have a different sexual ethic. We have a different way of understanding our money. Integrity matters. We have different laws. So should we be afraid? No. We may be at war, but we have Jesus, our champion, on our side. Rather, we're on his side. Who has given you more than your champion? Do you have anything to fear? No. Why? Because our sovereign king is reigning. Satan, he's defeated. Persecution, it may come, but we, persecution is never a sign that we're, we're forsaken by Jesus. Are we discouraged? Sure. We may be afflicted, but we cannot be crushed. Will the, will the government officials come in and take away our things? Maybe. But they are nothing. They're like dust on the scales that the Lord blows away. Our champion has defeated the power of death by dying and rising again. And nothing can threaten him or us anymore. We are his and he is ours. It won't be easy, but he will protect us. It won't be simple, but he will protect us. It will be messy, and he will protect us. And I'll tell you what, it's going to be hard, and you're going to want to quit, but he will protect us. Why? Because he is the all-powerful God who uses his power to rescue his people, no matter who defies authority, no matter who abuses authority, no matter who advocates authority, and no matter how much power you think you don't have. He has all the power. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray that you would 
Give us a heavenly perspective about all the things happening in the world that we live in. I pray for those that are tempted to fear, thinking there's nothing we can do. Lord, you are the one in control, and we ask that you would pour out your Spirit on our country and on the countries of the world so that there might be a, there might be a mass of people who have their hearts cut with conviction of sin, and I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you. But Lord, I pray that if we are to see days of increased persecution, days of persecution, period, if we're to see days of persecution, may we be a people who doesn't curse the world, but prays to God. May we be a people who look to you for our strength. Instead of trying to build up the resources internally to, to, to be strong enough to, to persevere, we confess we are not strong enough. We are not enough, but you are. And so, Lord, though it seems that the world around us is spinning out of control, we confess you have all the power and you are in control. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who embrace that reality. I pray you would help us to be a people that stop looking to ourselves for strength, but look instead to you. Jesus, thank you that you are our champion and that we can trust you unreservedly. And we pray that you would strengthen all of us in this room. I pray that you would help us as we see our weakness to turn to you and ask for strength. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.